It is considered to be the oldest story ever written, or at least the oldest story that we know. It's hero, the king of Uruk, Gilgamesh. I am your host, Petros Katupis, and yes, today we will be talking about the epic of Gilgamesh. Literally, one of my favorite epic tales ever told. I'm not joking. I enjoyed this narrative so much that I have many translations of the different versions, which I will get to shortly. I even have it on CD. Yes, ye old compact disc, which I eventually ripped and uploaded the MP3s to stream whenever, wherever. It did annoy my wife every now and then. I don't know what it is about this protagonist. Gilgamesh is such a cool character. Gilgamesh is also just an awesome name. I should have probably named my son Gilgamesh, although I believe that there would have been a bit of resistance. The epic of Gilgamesh is so influential that it would continue to be told for thousands of years and even inspire the many tales in later mythologies and biblical texts. Another fun fact. Here, in the western suburbs of Chicago, the Downers Grove Public Library has an entire relief depicting our hero and all of the major events of each tablet that makes up the entire epic of our translated standard Babylonian version. So, what is the Epic of Gilgamesh? The story originates from the region we often call the Cradle of Civilization, Mesopotamia. That is the land between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, where the country of Iraq is today. It is an awe-inspiring, amazing story about one man's quest to earn his fame and defeat death. I strongly recommend it to those who haven't already picked up a copy of this great piece of literature. Many variations of this epic exist. You have the Sumerian version, which dates to around 2100 BCE and consists of separate tales about our infamous King Gilgamesh. You also have the Akkadian written Old Babylonian version, dating to approximately 1700 BCE. Then there is the standard Babylonian version written at around 1200 BCE and later. This is the version that most modern translations are based from. And for good reason, it is the most complete. Gilgamesh and his adventures with his trusty sidekick and most loyal companion, Enkidu, have made such an impact on the ancients that we even find versions written in Hittite, Hurrian, and Ugaritic. Yes, we also have fragments of this epic discovered by archaeologists in Anatolia and the Levant, more specifically in Amar and Megiddo. We find references to Gilgamesh even in the Dead Sea Scrolls of Qumran. Don't worry, I will circle back to this later in this episode. And I know this sounds strange, but there is even a reference to a king named Gilgamesh, or I should say Gilgamos, found in Greco-Roman lore. In the works of the classical 2nd century author Alien, titled On the Nature of Animals, we find a birth legend. 
King Suichoros of the Babylonians had been warned by his magicians that a son born to his daughter would usurp his throne. In fear of this outcome, the king kept his daughter at the Acropolis under close guard, to no success because she still became pregnant, and the guards, fearing the king's wrath, cast the child from the summit. The baby was saved by an eagle in flight and was taken to an orchard, where the child was carefully set down. The caretaker of this place found the baby and raised him. The child, who was later to become king, was called Gilgamos. Anyway, as I'd mentioned earlier, the best known and most complete translation is that of the standard Babylonian version. The first tablets were discovered in 1848 to 1849 by archaeologist Austin Henry Laird in the ancient royal library of Ashurbanipal at the ancient Assyrian city of Nineveh. No one knew of its importance at the time, and boy, was it going to be the discovery of a lifetime. Maybe I've mentioned this in an earlier episode, but at this time, that is the mid to late 19th century, Assyriology and in turn, understanding cuneiform and the Akkadian languages was still somewhat new. And for those who do not know what cuneiform is, it is a unique ancient form of writing where the writer pressed a reed stylus into a wet clay brick to form signs which stood for a syllabic sound. Originally developed by the Sumerians in the 3rd millennium BCE, the writing would continue to be in use for another couple of thousand of years by the Akkadians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and, and many more ancient civilizations. Others would adopt the style and create history's very first alphabet. Yes, I'm talking about the Ugarits in western Syria. You know... When I am bored and in the mood, being the history nerd that I am, I will often go back to my cuneiform workbooks and practice my signs and continue to learn how to read them. Collectively, there are hundreds of signs, and sadly, I have not made it very far. I digress too much, and honestly, it is mostly due to my ADHD, but I'd like to think that when I do, I provide little interesting facts here and there. Moving back to the main topic, the first tablets of this epic were finally deciphered in uh, the 1870s at the British Museum by George Smith, who came across the story of a deluge startlingly similar to the biblical account of the flood of Noah. Yes, it was the standard Babylonian version. Upon reading it, George Smith was so excited that he did not even know what to do with himself. Correction, he actually started to undress himself. Not sure why, but that is the story that we are told. So here we have a story about a great flood of biblical proportions that predates the version found in the Bible. As one would expect, this discovery made headlines across the globe. In the coming years, George Smith would go on to lead excavations at Nineveh and in turn discover the rest of the missing tablets and fragments where he eventually translates the complete story. It wasn't just the flood story that made this tale such an important find. After translating it in full, we were given a glimpse into ancient Mesopotamian religion, which remarkably and coincidentally showed similarities to the primeval history of the book of Genesis, 
That is chapters 1 through 11. We're talking about the Nephilim, again, the flood of Noah, to even parts of the Eden narrative. Early on in our tale, in both the first and second columns of the first tablet, we learn of Gilgamesh's background. Wild calf of Lugalbanda, Gilgamesh is perfect in strength. Suckling of the sublime wild cow, the wild cow Ninsun. Towering Gilgamesh is uncannily perfect. Two-thirds of him was divine and one-third of him was human. With knowledge of the Sumerian king list, we find out that Lugalbanda was once a king of Uruk. Many older Sumerian poems exist pertaining to Lugalbanda. He was a mortal who had joined with the deity Ninsun to produce Gilgamesh. At first glance, one may wonder why the strange division of divinity and mortality. Remember, two-thirds divine, one-third human. This may be due to the fact that Lugalbanda may have started off human, but was deified in the years to come. Reasons or events for this transformation are unknown. Strangely, though, and according to the same Sumerian king list, the first king of the dynasty of Unug, that's the Sumerian name of uh, Uruk, was Meskiagasher. He was followed by his son Enmerkar. Then came Lugalbanda and Dumuzid, followed by Gilgamesh. One thing to point out is that on the list, Lugalbanda is not mentioned as Gilgamesh's father. Instead, it reads, Gilgamesh, whose father was a phantom, the lord of Kulaba. The most interesting part of this is that in the Sumerian poems of Gilgamesh, he is mentioned as being the son of Lugalbanda and not a phantom. The Sumerian king list was written on a clay tablet using a stylus and then baked at around the very end or after the Isin dynasty. The Sumerian versions of Gilgamesh date to around the same time period, so many scholars still question its meaning. Other than his partial divinity, a lot of emphasis is placed on Gilgamesh's and later Enkidu, who was created by the gods, height. His foot was a triple cubit, his leg six times twelve. His stride was six times twelve cubits. And you know, the rest of the text is partially fragmentary, so I, I won't be reading the rest. But these gigantic features can also be seen in Tablet 4 on the path to Umbaba in the Cedar Forest. Also in Tablet 6, the battle with the Bull of Heaven. And again in Tablet 10, the ferry ride to Utnapishtim. The emphasis on height was also extremely significant in many other translations of the story, such as the Hittite version in which Gilgamesh is described as being 11 yards in height and his breast was nine spans in breadth. Normal humans in the epics were never mentioned as being the same height as these demigods. In fact, the everyday citizens of Uruk were constantly astonished at the height of both Gilgamesh and Enkidu. The demigods found in the ancient Mesopotamian world displayed undeniably similar traits to the Nephilim, which have led many scholars to believe that the sons of God, including God himself, may have been viewed as giants at one point in history. We have spent so much time talking about the history, discovery, and importance of the epic, but what is the story? No, I won't be reading the text in full. No one's got time for that, but I will highlight some of the major events. 
In the standard Babylonian version, there are 11 tablets that make up this epic tale. A 12th tablet exists, but it isn't part of the general narrative and therefore is believed to have been a later addition. The story opens up introducing the listener. I say listener because remember, very few knew how to read and our audience would have likely heard these poems recited by a bard or read from somewhere to the tune of a lyre. The listener is introduced to the king of high-walled Uruk, Gilgamesh. He was a tyrant. He oppressed his people. He slept with the brides on their wedding night. None could match him in strength and agility. He was a giant among men. The people cried to the gods for help, and the gods eventually listened. So they created a primitive man who was essentially Gilgamesh's equal in every way possible. His name was Enkidu. And Enkidu initially lived with the wild beasts and acted as one of them. He did not know the ways of being human until a temple prostitute by the name of Shamhat seduced Enkidu and gained his trust. Over time, he is introduced to the human diet and the ways of being, well, a human. Shortly thereafter, he learns of this tyrant Gilgamesh and infuriated, he travels to Uruk to challenge him. The two lock arms begin to wrestle, but none could beat the other. Again, they were equal in every way. Unable to win, they eventually become the best of friends. It is at this point that Gilgamesh proposes that they both go on a journey to the cedar forest to slay its guardian, the grotesque and ferocious monster Umbaba. The cedar forest is associated with today's Lebanon. I'm sure that many of us have heard of the cedars of Lebanon mentioned in the Book of Kings in the Old Testament Bible. The cedars were sent from the Phoenicians as material for the infamous Temple of Solomon. Also, another interesting fact, the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures, formerly known as the Oriental Institute of the University of Chicago, has on display a small relief which looks like a statue of Gilgamesh standing on top of the head of Umbaba. It is a beautiful artifact. Anyway, it is a long journey to reach Umbaba, and by Tablet 5, our heroes eventually find him, or it. I guess we don't really know what Umbaba was. They fight the monster and slay it. Cedars are chopped down and sent down the Euphrates River towards Uruk to build a gate to the temple of the god Enlil. The thing is, Gilgamesh was described as an extremely attractive man. Even other goddesses could not resist him, and that included the goddess Ishtar. She begins to flirt with our hero, and he rejects her, mainly because of her treatment of a past lover, Dumuzi. Oh, did she become furious. She marched to her father, Anu, and threatened to raise the dead to devour the living if he did not release the bull of heaven to avenge her. Anu did cave in. Ishtar then leads the bull of heaven to Uruk, where it caused all sorts of devastation. It lowers the sea level of the Euphrates River and dries up the marshes. It opens up huge pits that swallow 300 men. It should come as no surprise that both Gilgamesh and Enkidu slay this beast and sacrifice part of it to the sun god Shamash. But while the city of Uruk celebrates, 
and Kidu has an ominous dream, which leads us to Tablet 7. In his dream, the gods decide that one of our heroes has to die for killing both Umbaba and the Bull of Heaven. And Kidu's health starts to deteriorate, and he eventually passes. Gilgamesh is stricken with such grief and not knowing what to do with himself wanders the wilderness, the countryside, although finally he realizes that he too will eventually die. And upon doing so, he decides to seek Utnapishtim to learn the secrets of eternal life. In his quest to find immortality, Gilgamesh runs, or I should say, goes on a very long and difficult journey to reach the flood hero Utnapishtim at the edge of the world. He travels by land, by sea, and even through the underworld where the sun passes through after it sets in the west and before it rises in the east. It is in Tablet 11 that we come across the flood account. Utnapishtim recalls the story to Gilgamesh. I will reveal to you, O Gilgamesh, a secret matter. And a mystery of the gods, I will tell you, the city of Shurupak, a city you yourself have knowledge of, which once was set on the bank of the Euphrates, that aforesaid city was ancient and gods once were within it. The great gods resolved to send a deluge. He continues to mention how the Sumero-Babylonian god Ea had spoken to him, informing him of what was to be expected, that is, the flood, and directed Utnapishtim to build a large boat. The reason given to the elders and the construction of the vessel parallels that of another Assyrian flood story starring the flood hero, Atrahashis. According to most creation myths, including the Mesopotamian ones, humankind was created for the sole purpose to serve the gods. Aside from worship and offerings, they were to farm the soil and maintain the rivers and canals, which... If you understand the landscape of Mesopotamia, was a pretty big deal and the source for many conflicts in the ancient world. At one point, these human beings began to rebel and refuse to do what was expected of them. The god of the gods eventually said that enough was enough and decided to wipe the slate clean by sending this flood. Going back to the version found in Gilgamesh, Utnapishtim built the boat and brought aboard his family and kin, silver, gold, all the seeds of living things, cattle from the open country, wild beasts from the open country, and all kinds of craftsmen. The storm finally came, all was hidden in darkness, and Utnapishtim continues on with his story. I went into the boat and cocked the door, to the cocker of the boat, to Puzuramuri, the boatman. I gave over the edifice with all it contained. For seven days, the storm and flood raged, and on the seventh day, the sea became calm. The boat came to rest and did not budge on Mount Nemush. After seven days, Utnapishtim released a dove, and with no place to perch itself, it came back. He then released a swallow, still with no such luck of finding any visible land. Finally, a raven was set loose. And when it saw that the waters were receding, it did not turn around, but instead moved on. At the end, Utnapishtim gives an offering to the gods, and upon the smelling of its fragrance, the gods gathered. Regretting the entire destruction of mankind, the gods vowed to never agree to such an act again, and give Utnapishtim and his wife the gift of immortality. 
Hithro, Utnapishtim, has been a human being. Now Utnapishtim and his wife shall become like us, gods. Utnapishtim shall dwell far distant at the source of the rivers. Thus it was they took me far distant and had me dwell at the source of the rivers. Sounds very similar to the biblical account, doesn't it? After retelling his story, Utnapishtim challenges Gilgamesh to stay awake for six days and seven nights. Unable to complete the challenge, Gilgamesh falls asleep, almost immediately. Utnapishtim instructs his wife to bake a loaf of bread on each of the days he is asleep. Waking up and realizing that he could not even conquer sleep, Utnapishtim instructs Urshanabi, the ferryman, to wash and clothe Gilgamesh, and they depart for Uruk. But as they are leaving, Utnapishtim's wife asks her husband to offer Gilgamesh a parting gift. Utnapishtim informs Gilgamesh that at the bottom of the sea exists a special rejuvenation plant that is known to make people young again. He manages to obtain this plant and decides to test it out on an old man once he returns to Uruk. But he doesn't even get that opportunity. When he stops to bathe, the plant is stolen and consumed by a serpent. The serpent sheds its skin and departs. Gilgamesh then weeps. He went through all of this and for nothing. He lost his only chance at immortality, and then he returns to Uruk empty-handed. Earlier in this episode, I said that I would revisit the mention of Gilgamesh in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Aside from the epic of Gilgamesh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are considered to be one of the most important historical discoveries as it relates to the Bible. In the 1940s and the 1950s, thousands of fragments of papyrus were discovered in the caves along the mountainside of the deserts of Qumran to the north of the Dead Sea. These fragments preserved contents biblical in nature, some of which were copies of books found in the Old Testament today, making them the oldest preserved copies of biblical texts. Anyway, most of the fragments we are concerned with right now are found or were found in Cave 4. We're talking about fragments 530, 531, 532, and maybe 533. We call these papyrus fragments collectively the Book of Giants. It was written in the Aramaic language, and similar to the Book of Enoch, the Book of Giants expands on the narrative found in the beginning of chapter 6 of the Book of Genesis. It tells of the exploits of the giants, or I should say the Nephilim, especially the two children of Shemihaza, Oya and Haya. The problem is, no complete manuscript exists and its exact contents and their order has been a matter of guesswork. Most of the content of the known fragments concerns the giant's ominous dreams and Enoch's efforts to interpret them and to intercede with God on the giant's behalf. Unfortunately, due to the little remains of the independent adventures of the Nephilim, it is unclear whether these tales were derived, or at least partially derived, from ancient Near Eastern mythologies. The reason why we believe that it could be is the result of multiple references to the name of one of the giants, Gilgamesh. What does this all mean? It means that at least by the 2nd century BCE, biblical writers were very familiar with Gilgamesh, and he was a Nephilim. Yes, 
a biblical demigod. I wasn't kidding when I said the Epic of Gilgamesh made such an impact in the ancient world. And because of its discovery, we can retell the tale of an epic hero who felt love, grief, guilt, despair, desperation, and suffered through hardships unlike any other. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off. <laughs>